Thank you for tonight and for our time together. We thank you for the fact that you have been gracious toward the human race. Leave us, you did not forsake us, but you willingly uh, undertook a phenomenal plan of salvation, of coming to the planet, of dying for all of our sins. And we thank you that this provision through the cross of Christ is available to us today. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts that by nature incline away from you, toward you. And we thank you that you have given and preserved the word of God to us today. We ask this, we thank you and we ask that you would illuminate our hearts tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Just to uh, again review a little bit, um, we are on this section, uh, the last part of the series. This is the last, finishing up the last chapter of um, what we should have finished up last spring. And um, we're down at this end, and we've looked at the last year, we dealt with the call of Abraham, the Exodus, Mount Sinai, and the conquest, all this time period, basically from the time of the flood to the time of our present history. And now, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at what leader, a leadership model looks like for the kingdom. That's the, basically the, what God is doing with David. And out of that, we'll get uh, some insights into the process of Christian growth and sanctification. But one of the things we want to uh, do is, is uh, if you'll look in the notes, we tried to give you the contrast principle again of showing you uh, how David differed. Uh, and we, we said that... Um, the, the pagan leaders, remember last week, of, if we get to um, page 105 in the notes, I tried to give you there some examples of what a pagan king in David's day, how that pagan king acted. You can check it out in the library. You can read what these men did. And it's part of the method that we use in this framework concept so that we can learn about the, the uniqueness of the Bible and the uniqueness of how God's Spirit works. When God's Spirit works, there's a footprints, a trail of footprints through time and history. And you can observe this. And that's why it's important that you always read the Bible against its environment, because it shows the signs of the inspiration uh, of God on those scriptures and his work in time. So that's why uh, in those two quotes on page 105, I've taken from some of the translations from Esar Haddon's reign. Esar Haddon was a king in Syria. He lived centuries after David, but he represents the kind of thinking that you would have run across had you lived in, the, in that time. Actually, not too much different from the present day. but. Is, is the quote, uh, footnote 8 on page 105, um, I, I think that you want to look carefully at the middle part of that quote. Uh, what we're trying to do here is analyze what made these pagan kings tick. How did they think their way through life? They were successful in their time. These are the guys that basically were successful. They are the leaders of their culture. How did those men think? 
All right, the, the key sentence there is in, uh, in the middle sentence where it says, I prayed to Asher, to Sin, to Shamash, to Bel, to Nebur, Nebo, to Mergal, to Ishtar of Nineveh, to Ishtar of Arbella, and they agreed to give me an oracle answer, meaning that the priests would come from these different cultic temples. Now let's think about what we just read. Let's take this apart so we can see where the Bible comes in here. Let's go back to the elementary truth that we've seen so many times. Um, let me go get that slide out. Um, I have it here. The slide that we've seen ad nauseum. Now let's think about this because we, we keep revealing this over and over and over again, and we'll learn it. <coughs> the Bible is unique in the world because the God of the Bible is the creator of everything. That is what makes fun. All the rest of the stuff in the Bible comes out of this. Because God is not part of the creation. He is not part of the cosmos. He is separate from it. If the cosmos never existed, it wouldn't be at all a weakness in God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit loved one another, had fellowship with one another, had perfect communion with one another. They did not need the cosmos. Now, if you go to deal with other religions, even monotheistic Islam, for example, think about it for a moment. With a solitary God like Islam, Allah, Allah has to create a universe in order to have a complement to himself and exercise one of his attributes called love. Love doesn't have an object in solitary monotheism unless the creation's there. So that makes the creation a corollary of the creator. That's not true in the Bible. The Bible, Jesus said in John 17, before the world was, you loved me. And we have conversations recorded between the members of the Trinity in the Bible. So they don't need the universe as an object for their love. Now, this may seem like a fine, obscure point, but take my word for it, this is not a fine, obscure point. This is very fundamental and very basic. The God of the Scripture, another way of describing what I'm trying to get at here, the God of the Scripture is self-contained. He does not need anything outside of himself. In Islam, that's not really true, though the Islamic people would say so. It really isn't when you think about it, because in order for Allah to love and exercise that attribute, he's got to have an object for it. And if he doesn't have an object for it, then he has to create an object for it. So before Allah can fully reveal himself, he has to have an object in this area of love. Trinity did not have to do that. So in the scriptures, then, we have this ex nihilo creator creature distinction. All paganism, all paganism goes to this. And there's 84 versions of paganism, but it all means a continuity of being, again, to review what we mean by that expression. It means that God, man, animals, rocks, atoms are all part of a scale. A scale. God is, is, is sort of like man. He's just superman, that's all. He's a superman. Or men are little elves like gods. We're all part of the continuum. All part of the spectrum. 
And this is why Darwin did not originate this. People always think evolution started with Darwin. No, it didn't. Evolution was implicit in paganism from the very start. All Darwin has done, he put a time scale on development from one part of the continuity of being to the other. He just scaled it in time. But the idea was there for all along. Okay, now, when we come down to these men like Esar Haddon, that sentence that we just read, who is he praying to? He's praying to the gods and the goddesses. Okay, here are the gods and the goddesses. All right, they rate on a scale of being, and here's Esar Haddon down here. And so he prays up the scale to these gods and goddesses because he wants what? He wants security. He wants victory in his life. He, he realizes he's finite. He realizes he's, he's limited. So he, he, because he's made in God's image, is made to pray. So he prays. The problem is, because he's depraved and praying, he has to create an image out there. Because obviously these gods and goddesses aren't real. They're demonically induced illusions, but they're not the real thing. So therefore, he has been deluded and deceived, and he hedges his bets. Count the number of gods and goddesses in that sentence. Let's see, there's Asher, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So he prays to eight. In other words, if one doesn't do it, he's got eight of these guys. That's called a diversified portfolio. All right? So if, he, if one of them drops it, he's got seven others in there. All right, now why does he have to do this on a pagan basis? Because on a pagan basis, there is no personal sovereignty. Think about the bottom part of this diagram again. What do we say? Infinite personal and the infinite impersonal. There's no sovereign person over all the universe. What we have in paganism ultimately is a committee. And what happens in the committee is that from era to era, one of the members of the committee take power over all the other members of the committee. So for a while, example, Asher would ascend in the divine councils in their imagination, and that would explain why Assyria is ascendant politically. Then when Assyria gets conquered and, say, Babylon comes up, uh, then we would have perhaps uh, Shamash or Bel or somebody like that come up. And they would explain their history. That, that we have musical chairs in the committee and the chairmanship has changed. And that's how they explain history. Now, given that mode, is it rational for Esau Haddon to pray to these people? Yes. But, does he ever get real answers that mean anything? And the answer is no. So therefore, where is his security? You see, he gets back to the dilemma that we showed again and again. If God is sovereign and man has choice, this choice thing is only a little finite, weak, weak version of God's almighty sovereignty. We are made in his image, so we have a finite version of what he's like. So Esau Haddon, not knowing the real God, has no access to this. 
What does he have to do? He has to use this. He has to build his whole career on his finite, limited human choice. Notice the eyes in all this uh, footnote 8 here. I became mad as a lion. I called up... Notice, notice the arrogance here. I called up the gods by clapping my hands. Now, what kind of a... You know, come on, let's have a meeting. He calls the meeting together. And the, all the eight come into the meeting. Now, who's controlling who here? So, this is the, this is the fundamental arrogance. And why we're not doing this to pick on Esau Haddon. We're doing this to get insight into our own flesh. This, but by the grace of God, is us. This is what sin looks like. We want to run the universe, and it's going to be done our way. So out here we have, say, one of the other attributes. We won't go through them all, but here's God's omnipotence. Well, he has no access to real omnipotence, but he has access to his own political power. And so he exercises this. You see, he's building a kingdom and a leadership model on human resources. That's all a pagan can do, is he has to rely on his human attributes because he's got nothing outside of himself to depend upon. Now what we're doing in this chapter is we're contrasting that way of life with how David did it. And David did it because while David knew he had choice, he never decided absolutely that his choice was binding. He deferred to God. And last time we, took, we went to a text in the scripture that showed how he spared Saul. So let's turn back to that text in 1 Samuel 24. I guess it was 1 Samuel 26 where we had that famous statement. Both 24 and 26 are both the same theme. <coughs> verse 10. Now, we could take dozens of verses here, but we're going to take verse 10 because verse 10 will most clearly show how David handled himself in a, in a political situation involving life and death and political intrigue, how, how Esau hadn't handled himself. And from the, watching these two different leaders model behavior, we learn something. One was a man of faith and the other was faithless. And faced with the same political situation, they acted completely differently. Esau hadn't in the bottom of your notes on page 105, took out, he says, uh, the culpable military which had schemed to secure the sovereignty of Assyria for my brothers, I considered guilty as a collective group and meted out a grievous punishment to them. I exterminated their male descendants. Now that's the man of the flesh. In order to protect himself, because where does his security lay, by the way? Let's think about this. In the flesh... Where does our security lie? With what we can do. 
So we're very highly protective and defensive of this. This is why the flesh can't really love anybody. Flesh is never relaxed enough to love anybody. It can't because it's too busy protecting itself. But here's the man of faith. His security doesn't rest in himself. And so David says in verse 10, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand. In other words, I am going to turn this over to the Lord and I'm going to leave it in his hands. And I'm going to relax. Because my security doesn't come from what I do. My security comes from what God promises. So there you have the two distinctions. I mean, it's very elementary spiritual truth, but this was a high-profile political act. So we have one dynastic ruler, the usurper, or looked upon in politics, as the guy that's going to take over the throne, and he has the faith to allow himself to say, I am not going to take that throne. God promises that throne. It's going to come in his time, in his way. I could blast my way and gun my way into that throne. But the same God who has protected me against seven attempts on my life, remember, seven assassination attempts were tried against David. Seven in this book of Samuel. And every one of them was thwarted. And David learned the lesson. Now, wait a minute. You know, if God wanted to take me out, he could have taken me out on assassination attempt number three. But he didn't. He protected me. Protected me number five, number six, number seven. So God means what he says. I will be king. But it's going to be done God's way. So that's, an Im- that's what we're trying to get at here is that the, the model of behavior between a messianic leader and a leader of the flesh. Well, there's some other things that we also want to review and to understand in this passage. And that is that something else that David's going to do uh, we'll get into that a little bit more uh, in a few minutes, but I mention it now just so if you're kind of taking these in note form, you'll see. A second thing we're looking at is that David fulfilled a king-priest model that goes back prior to Israel. This is a, it's a strange thing here, but, and it, doesn't, it comes out in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the, the uh, priest after the order of Melchizedek. But David was the one who set spot of this. It was through David that God revealed this truth. And that was that from the time civilization began with the sons of Noah, there were king priests like Melchizedek. These guys were people who were elevated to the priesthood not because of genealogy. They were picked and chosen somehow. We don't know how but they combined political and spiritual power in their own person. They were not only a leader, but they led their people in worship to God. So it was not a separation of church and state. These guys combined both church and state in their own person. Now that, came to, that was made obsolete when Abraham was called out. Of course, Abraham actually acted as a king priest for his family. But when you have the exodus occur plus the law, at that point there's separation of church and state in that the Levitical priests handle the religious affairs of the nation and the elders and later on the king handle the political affairs of the nation. And they're not the same. And they're kept apart 
In Saul, for example, what did Saul try to do when he was finally disciplined by the prophet? He was, he was saying, at least, that he had kept all the oxen to do what? To sacrifice them. Excuse me? He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He can't go sacrificing. What tribe can go sacrificing? Leviticus. Well, the Levites, they're the only tribes that are, that are commissioned by God to be doing religious things, not Saul. Saul stepped out of his house. Saul stepped out of his tribal domain. Saul transgressed a separation of church and state. He had no business doing that. So this is kept separate, and it's part of God's diversifying to keep power splintered enough so the sin nature can't ruin it. God works that way. That's why he separates spiritual gifts. He doesn't give a lot of gifts to one person because that gets to our heads. And then you get arrogance. And then you get all kinds of things. So he splits us up. So each one of us can do a little bit, but we can't do a lot without the other person. <clears throat> so this goes on down through history. <clears throat> but in David, we have a strange thing happen, and it's an incident <clears throat> that occurs in 2 Samuel 5. And at this point... David does a strange thing. And what he does, if you turn there, a minute, this seems to violate the order of events, or order of, uh, the, the established order of separation of church and state. <clears throat> ah, excuse me, it's 2 Samuel 6. In 2 Samuel 6, David brings the Ark of God to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of God is something that the Levites were to take care of. And it had stayed all during Saul's reign, stayed in this village, and it had the problem down in Philistia and so on. And um, verse 12, it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house into the city of David with gladness. This act of bringing the ark in 2 Samuel 6 from this place up to Jerusalem, that act is commemorated in many psalms. They're called the enthronement psalms that evidently were written to commemorate this, this action. Now, there's something that's working. I want to see how observant you are as we discuss this. Something's happening here in history. In the progress of history, God is doing a strange thing with David here. He's pushing the Mosaic law to its absolute limits. A man from the tribe of Judah is moving the ark around that was supposed to have been the prerogative of the Levites. Moreover, he is moving it to a place that was utterly non-Jewish. The city of Jerusalem was, was left in ruins after the conquest. It was not a Jewish city. So here David picks out a capital for his kingdom in a city not ever used before politically in Israel, this new thing, this Jerusalem place, and he brings the Ark of God up there. And he does something else. Verse 14, if you look at carefully in this verse, you'll notice he was wearing something. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, what does that remind you of, as functionally? 
who wore ephods? The priests wore ephods. Now, isn't this interesting? Why isn't he being disciplined like Saul was being disciplined? We have something funny going on here. And God seems to be blessing it. Not only is God blessing it, but then we have the next incident that happens. So David and all the house of Israel bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of trumpet. So he, David was a guy that liked instrumental music. He founded the great Levitical choirs. He funded them for tremendous musical concerts in a worship service for Jehovah God. And then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord, they set it in its place. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Who? Who's supposed to offer, do offerings? Levites. We clearly have David moving into something new never before in Jewish history has a king ever done this. It would have been unconceivable for a person to do this. Something happened at this point in Jewish history that permitted a man from the tribe of Judah to be king. He had such powerful messianic credentials that he could pull this off without a revolt. But then we have to look that the text reminds us that it didn't go over in all quarters too carefully. And particularly, by the way, he probably was wearing nothing else but a linen ephod, and his wife doesn't like this, and she's going to make her little remark. When David had finished offering the burnt offering, the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now who's doing the blessing? Who used to do the blessing? The Levitical priest did the blessing. Now we have a Jewish king doing the blessing. David offered the offerings. He's doing the blessings. He distributed all people, all the multitude of Israel, a cake of bread and one of dates and raisins to each one. All the people departed to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant maids as one of the foolish ones shamely uncovers himself. So now we have a little drama going on between Michal and David. Now, keep in mind that Michal is Saul's daughter. David's married to her. Why do you suppose that little marriage happened? Political. I mean, let's face it. Political deals are made. That makes for a nice, smooth political continuity, doesn't it, between one dynasty and another. Well, I mean, after all, you've got the daughter of the previous dynastic ruler, and she's in your home. Well, now, she gets very pious and self-righteous here at this point. And she's going to tell David off. Because David has drifted into something that's peculiar here. And she spots it, but she's reacting to him. So it, and so David's answer in verse 21 is what he said back to Michal. She says, well, you know, you, you violated the law here. You, you, you shamed yourself. And, and what she's really saying is you shame me. I'm ashamed to be your wife. And so in verse 21, it was before the Lord, David says, who chose me above your father and above all your house. So sit on that one, lady. You see, this is the tug of war of the dynastic rulers hasn't gone away. Remember, Michal was brought up 
as royalty. She still bears the royal allegiance to her dad and to his dynasty. So David spots that one right away. So he says, it was before the Lord, meaning I claim the authority of my relationship with the Lord. And that stands above politics. And that in particular stands above you and your father and your whole dynasty. He chose me above your father and all his house. He appointed me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will be more lightly esteemed in this, and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you spoke, and with them I will be distinguished. And then the text concludes with a historical note. She had no children until the day of her death. You see how the prophets analyze history? They watch trends that develop in relationships. And then they relate a trend over here with a net result over here. This was, book was written after the fact. This book was written probably after both of them died. This book was written by prophets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is the Holy Spirit's analysis. He's just saying, just pay attention. Just look what happened here. Something happened. Now let's back off from this a moment. And think, when we read in the New Testament, a priest for after the order of Melchizedek, of whom are we reading? Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ modeled after? He is Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who is the son of David. Now, David claims that he is... He's, he's introducing a new theme into history, into Jewish history, and that is there's going to be that old Gentile model of Melchizedek is going to come back in history when there will be a leader who will not only combine uh, a tremendous leadership, but he will be priest. And think of what else Jesus Christ combines. He not only is going to be King Jesus, he is priest Jesus, and who does he offer? Himself. And he is the sacrifice, Jesus. So combined in one person, we have the politics, we have the spirituality, and we have the atonement. And this is what's developing theologically at this point in Old Testament history. As early as 1000 B.C., the pieces are starting to fall together to point a picture at what Messiah is going to look like. Jews had a terrible time with this. Until even Jesus' day, they thought there was going to be two messiahs. There was going to be a suffering messiah and a glorious messiah. They, they couldn't mesh those two things together. And so they had various messiahs. And this is a, still is a stumbling block. This is why you have Orthodox Jews. They're still looking for the, the messiah to come to reestablish. I mean, there was Orthodox Jews in Israel, believe, believe it or not, who fight against Israel. You know why, the, the, when in the, I think it was the Six-Day War, a Hebrew Christian was telling me that the, he, the Orthodox Jews sided with the Arabs against the Jews. And the reason they did that was they do not believe that the Jews have a right to establish a state with currency and with law until the Messiah comes to establish the state. They're so insistent that the Messiah must come first that they don't even like the present state of Israel. So that's how strong this belief still is. Well, the pieces of the messianic role have been fractured out. We believe, as Christians, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the pieces assemble in time. 
It's not that there's going to be a second Jesus. It's rather at this time, Jesus fills this part of the role, then comes along, and then he finishes this part of the role, and then he fixes this part of the role. Now, you have a little bit of that setting up in the book of Samuel, because what do we say? We said that you have Saul's on the throne. Saul goes on until he is declared to be the guy that's rejected. And so we said, in second, from 1 Samuel 8 to 1 Samuel 15, uh, 15, from 8 to 15, we have the story of Saul's rejection, and then he just peters out until he's killed at the end of the book of Samuel. David rises at chapter 16, and he's anointed, and he increases until... 2 Samuel. There's a transition here. Now, I want you to think about this transition. There's a number of features that point out ahead in history. We're starting to get into prophecy now. A little bit more. We get, as we move on to the Old Testament, we're going to get more and more into prophecy. Now, we're starting to see it set up here. This king-priest model, David fulfills it strange to the Old Testament ear. It's pointing forward to something. And it's pointing forward not to a Jewish priest, because the Jews didn't have king priests. It's pointing to a Gentile king priest model. What does that mean? Worldwide rule. A worldwide ruler. And the Messiah, therefore, will not just be Messiah of the nation Israel. He will be the Messiah of the entire world. So the universal role of Christ starts ever so slightly to come into focus here. And another thing to notice in this parallel is that just as David was anointed, and what happened? Why wasn't David able to take the throne right away? What was in the way of the throne? Saul, another dynasty, was ruling. See the analogy? Jesus was anointed in the New Testament. He doesn't take the throne because why? Who is the God of this world? Okay. So this, and, and who is the God of this world that genuinely tempted him? Bow to me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Jesus didn't say, no, you don't have a role of the kingdoms. Jesus didn't answer the temptation that way. He fully accepted the fact that Satan is the God of this world. That's what made it a temptation. If Satan didn't have the kingdoms, then it wasn't a temptation to Jesus. So obviously, if it was a real temptation, Satan must really, it must have been a genuine offer. So, what did David do all during this time? He fled what? Assassination attempts. Seven of them. What corresponds to this assault today, down through history? In Jesus' life, was there attempts on his life? Sure was. And after Jesus died and went to heaven, who was it that persecuted the church that met him one day on the road to Damascus? Paul. And what did Jesus say to Paul on the road to Damascus? Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. Did Saul ever see Jesus in the flesh but at the, up to that point? No. Then how could he be persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting the church which is the body of Jesus. So are there assaults against Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead? Obviously. 
the persecution of the church. And during this time, where does David go and build his army? And from what material does he build his army that will one day rule with him? Remember I said, if you read the book of Samuel, in the cave of Adullam, and all the people who were in debt, all the rejects from society, we'd say all the social scumbags show up at the cave of Adullam. It's that unlikely material that David builds the leadership core for his coming kingdom. Is there a parallel? You see how the Old Testament for, has a foreview of what's going on today. And if we're going to be accurate in interpretation of prophecy, we want to get the cues. These are all cues that are setting up in the text here. And we want to see these parallels. Okay, we're going to go today to 2 Samuel chapter 7 because we want to do something else. We want to get to this business of the Davidic covenant. So, let's look at the Davidic Covenant. Again, I'm going to use my approach of contrasting this covenant with how the pagan kings operated. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel. It came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord gave him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now here's an interesting, I, I just, we just pause here in verse 3 and 4. This is one of those neat little places in the text. If you look very carefully, you'll see the real humanness of the Bible. That the Bible is so genuinely human. In verse 3, what is it that Nathan says? Who does he profess to have spoken in the name of? The Lord. Who is speaking to Nathan in verse 4? The Lord. And what is the Lord doing? He's correcting it. Had Nathan got a word from the Lord in verse 3? He was speaking uh, hot air. It's just a lot of religious words. Bye bye, Lord bless you. Kind of thing. Didn't mean a thing. Just a lot of religious hot air. And, the, and then the Lord says, okay, now Nathan, I'm going to give you the word. And the word is, no. Go and say to my servant David, thus saith the Lord, are you the one that should build a house for me to dwell in? For if I not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt to this day, I've been moving around in a tent, even a tabernacle. Whereof have I gone to all the sons of Israel? Did I ever speak a word with one of the tribes which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be ruler over my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint my place for my people Israel. I'll plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares that to, to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build me a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there's some language here I want you to track very 
carefully. This is the first time in the history of Scripture that these words are used the way they are going to be used here. And it represents a fundamental step forward in the progress of Revelation. Because out of this, we're going to, in a couple of more weeks, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be studying about sanctification and personal confession of sin and eternal security. And it's going to be built around what's happening here in verse 13 and 14. So watch carefully the text. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now, there's a number of things, and we've got to take that verse apart. There's a number of tremendous truths there. And we can read it so fast we miss it. So let's, let's take a little time. What is he introducing by way of a relationship that occurs for the first time? Remember back in the Exodus I said that Israel was looked upon as a son, that the nation had a son, but that was corporate. This is the first time we have a real father-son relationship in Scripture between God and an individual. Now God is beginning to reveal ever some more things. But in association with this father-son relationship, now I, I want to I show you why verse 14 and 15 have to be taken together, because we live in a, in a generation of sentimentalism. And people like to read things based on how they feel. And when they get into hard times... We fall apart because we built our lives on how we feel. And when we get in a hard time, we don't feel good. And so the whole thing is, if we built on emotion, the house of cards caves in. You can't build your life on a house of cards. You have to build your life on something that's going to be true in the bad times as well as the good times. If it isn't, it's not strong enough to, to trust. We all go through hard times. So we have to have, get our feet on the ground spiritually. Now watch the text. Watch what happens here. This is a gift of God. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, is that the word for sin? Yes. Is this guy going to sin? Yes. Is he going to be infallible son? No. He's going to be a sinning son. Does sin have a price? Yes, sin does have a price. But what do you read as how sin is dealt with in verse 14? I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. What's the metaphor? Rod and stroke. Child abuse? No. God put the gluteus maximus there for a purpose. And it's a lot less brutal, correct discipline, correct corporal discipline, done in a loving spirit, not, not being brutal about it than it is to constantly beat down kids with words. Sticks and stones never blah, 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 but yeah, well, words do hurt. Words cut. And you can verbally abuse far worse than you can corporally abuse. Now, this is not an excuse to go murder kids. This is just a saying that in the Scripture, corporal physical punishment is legitimized entirely in the book of Proverbs. With all due apologies to all the welfare people that are looking in on you to see if somebody swatted somebody in the behind. 
God would be called in for fines because of child abuse. I will correct him with a rod of iron and the strokes of the sons of men, but, in verse 15, my loving kindness shall not depart from him. Now, let's, I want to, this is a word that's going to come up more and more, so let's get it here. Loving kindness is almost 95% translating off a Hebrew word called kezid. Kezid is a Hebrew word that means covenant love. The Hebrew had two words for love. Ahav and kezid. And using analogy of marriage, before somebody's uh, couple's married, they ahav one another. After marriage, it's kezid because after marriage there is a marital covenant established. Verse 15, my loving kindness shall not depart. And by the way, when you read the Psalms, you remember this word because whenever you read in any of the Davidic Psalms about my loving kindness shall not depart, don't read that just as sort of light poetry and something we sing 15 times in a hymn and it sounds nice. That's not what it's talking about. When you see the word loving kindness in your Bibles in the Psalm, it is talking about 2 Samuel 7, right here. It's a reference to this covenant. My loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed. Now, what did we say was the kind of kingship that Saul had established? It was a conditional kingship. So, what we're going to have now is an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant. That means that it is an expression of the sovereign will of God. And nothing in history is going to change it because what is God? God is self-contained. He is not at the beck and call of anybody outside of Himself. And nobody is going to tell God how to run His creation. If He says, this is the way it is, then that is the way it is. Period. Over and out. So now what He's saying is... What did he do to Saul? He removed him dynastically. This is not just a rejection of Saul. It's a rejection of all of his seed. It's a rejection of Jonathan. It's a rejection of Jonathan's son. It's a rejection of all of the Saulites. But David, the loving kindness, will never depart from you. So, aha, now we have some interesting things. And your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So now we have a covenant, and we're going to study it under four parts, just like we studied all the other covenants. So let's look at the covenant, how we, we always say that the best way of studying biblical covenants is always, first of all, remember, a covenant is a contract. In the same sense that you sign a contract for your house, for your car, or for anything else, a covenant has two parties. Two people come into this covenant. So we have to analyze who are, the, who are the parties to this particular contract. Who are the parties? What's one of them? Who's doing the talking? God is. So God is party number one to this contract. 
Who was party number two? Who was it made with? David and his seed. So the parties to this contract, God and David plus S. David plus his seed. Now let's think back when we had previous contracts in the Bible. We had the contract between God and Noah, first one. That was God on the one party. Who was the other party? Very interesting. Noah, his family, and non-human animals. The Noahic covenant includes animals. The first case of genuine animal rights, long before PETA. So, we have the animals, and this is the ecology, long before Vice President Gore. God had firmly established the, the security of the environment. He made a contract. He made a covenant with it. Then in the days of Abraham, we have a covenant. Contract with God and Abraham and his seed. Promising three things. Land, seed, worldwide blessing. We have a contract with Israel, but that one has ifs and if you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. We call that a conditional covenant. Parties, 12 tribes, and God. Embedded also there was one we skipped over, and that's the Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy 30, when God promises that you will return to the land. So that's the Abrahamic promise number two, land, seed, worldwide blessing. That's our promise number one. That number one promise, the Abrahamic covenant, gets re-ratified in the Palestinian covenant. Now, second promise back in the Abrahamic covenant is land, what? Seed, worldwide blessing. Now, here's the seed coming up again. Now, the promise that was with Abrahamic covenant, I will protect your seed and the seed will continue. Now we have more information because now this contract is going to add to our information about God's plan for history. And that is that David and his seed will be tied in with the rulership of this world. That from this point on, this dynasty will be utterly unlike any other human dynasty that has ever lived. Now, two things have to infer from this, this, this thing. Uh, well, we'll get to that when we get the terms. Let's go. Uh, we've got the parties. Now we can do the sign of the covenant. Now the sign isn't explicitly mentioned here. It has to be implied. The best guess is the sign of the covenant is the existence of the dynasty. The continuing existence of the dynasty. Have you looked carefully in your notes uh, when I mention this? I might point out that... Um, Let's see, on page 106, I think I did that. Um, no, page 107, last full paragraph, four sentences from the bottom of the page. You'll see I quote 2 Kings 25. So you have your Old Testament here. Turn to the end of 2 Kings. Why am I doing this? I want to show you how the thinking of this covenant shaped how Israel viewed her history. We're skipping forward by centuries. We're now looking at the history of the nation Israel after they had been defeated. A horrible time. It's awful to watch your country go down the tubes. And we probably are going to live, unfortunately, to see it for our country. But it's not pleasant to live in the generation when your country falls apart. And it wasn't a very nice experience to go through military defeat 
economic destruction, and all the havoc judgments that God wrecked upon his nation. And the nation went into captivity. I mean, the foreign armies came in and they said, you, 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 out of here. And put you in chain gang and march you hundreds of miles across the desert. Some think Psalm 119 was written during that humiliating march across the desert. Not a very nice experience. The, everything is in shambles. Total political chaos. Everything lost. Fortunes lost. Land lost. Assets gone. Companies and businesses destroyed. Families wrecked. Children killed. In the middle of all this chaos, at the end of Second Kings... Notice verse 26. And then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. This is a group that's fled into Egypt. How does the second kings end on what theme? And it came to about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, that Ebal Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him, set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes, had his meals in the king's palace all the days of his life for his allowance, and blah, 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 blah. What, is, what was chosen by the Holy Spirit as a concluding note to the existence of this nation in history? The survival of what? The Davidic dynasty. Notice he says he is a king of who? The north or the south? King of Ephraim or the king of Judah? King of Judah. Who survived this horrible catastrophe in history? David's line. And why? Because in the New Testament, who has got to... What line has to be there? When the New Testament begins... What, is it, what does it attach itself to? Right away. First chapter. The son of David. The Davidic line has terminated in history, but it's fulfilled the prophecy that it shall exist forever and ever. Why? Because it terminated in an eternal person. Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is man. Jesus Christ is eternal. Therefore, Jesus Christ fulfills the terms of the Davidic covenant. And this great covenant points to Jesus Christ. So let's turn back to 2 Samuel. You see, these, these covenant ideas underlie the structure of the Old Testament. And we have to pay attention to this underlying structure. Because this underlying structure turns out to be the underlying structure of history itself. That's why the Bible is the history book. And all other histories have to, have to sit on top of the Bible. Because the Bible is the foundation for where history is going. Now, you'll notice that if this is the sign, the uh, eternal existence of the, of, the cub, of the dynasty, the eternal existence of David's seed, now we come to the terms of the covenant. And the terms of the covenant, in 2 Samuel 7, as we read it over, as I list them on the bottom of page 107 on the notes, that can be summarized in three promises, each having a particular application to the royal family of Israel and a universal application to the royal family of the greater son. First, here's the first term of the Davidic covenant, top of page 108, with verse references. First, the king would enjoy a father-son relationship with God. A father-son relationship with God. Jesus is called the son of 
God. You see, here's where it's all set up. This Psalm 2, by the way, put that in your notes if you don't already have it. It's got there in the second line. Psalm 2 is one of the great hymns of the Old Testament that introduces us to the title, the Son of God. It has to do with Jesus' kingship. The king would enjoy a father-son with a relationship with God. The king would be adopted into God's family, and later those in Christ would be called the sons of God. Why are we called that? See, there's a rich heritage behind this sons of God business. It's not just not a sweet little term. Second, this is the second legal term or the legal provision in this contract. If the seed of David should sin, they would be chastened but never rejected. It was unconditionally elected. Those two are electing David's son, though disciplined, are never lost. Right? Some New Testament theology coming out here. Third, David's dynasty would always be centered at the cultic city of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel. Similarly, those in Christ are destined to be descended at the throne of God as priests and kings forever, and the book of Revelation ends with what descending from heaven? The new, the new Jerusalem. So from this point forward, there's a locality in the cosmos where God will meet man. It's called Jerusalem. The last element that we study in the con contract structure, we've de dealt with those three terms. The, finally, the fourth element is all these um, biblical covenants are introduced by a sacrifice. And the strange thing is, this is the only covenant that doesn't appear to have a sacrifice with it. Now, does anybody use your religious imagination from what you know of the Word of God and suggest a solution to this dilemma? Why is the Davidic covenant lacking a sacrifice? Anybody kind of guess what might be going on here? If the Abrahamic, the Davidic, uh, the Sinaitic, the Noahic, the New Covenant is going to come after this one, New Covenant, talks about a sacrifice also. Where's the sacrifice? The sacrifice is the king. See, he's missing here. There's an unresolved tension that is only resolved later in the New Testament. Lo and behold, the son of David who comes is the Lamb of God. And he turns into his own sacrifice for his own covenant. But there's no, re no record of the sacrifice being done at this point. The only hint, as I say, on page 108 is a strange hint in Psalm 16.10, which is cited by the apostles in Acts 2, that David's soul would never see corruption. Okay. We have run out of time tonight, but if you look back on page 107, I want to just quickly contrast... David with another Gentile king, this time not Esau Haddon, but up on the top of page 107, we'll, we'll look at just for a minute at a, a Pharaoh, Tutmos III, another famous Gentile king. This is, the, this is taken from some of the, Egyptian, uh, the translation of Egyptian literature, done when Tutmos, like David, had finished his military conquest and had settled down to a political reign. So they, both men are at a parallel point in their career. At this point, Tutmos settles down and he receives this word apparently from the priest. Welcome to me as thou exaltest to the sight of my beauty, my son, my avenger. Notice the son. 
See, there was father-son relationship between king and God. Thou treadest all my foreign countries, thy glad heart. There is none who can trust himself into the vicinity of thy majesty while I am thy God. My serpent died in which of all my head she consumes them. Then, after mentioning his help of Tutmos, Amun-Re turns to the matter of temple building. So the gods, meaning the priesthood that ran for the gods, when the king finished his conquest, what would the king come back to the homeland with? Booty. Guess who has to pay? Excuse me, priests say, where's ours? You came back with thousands and millions of dollars of confiscated property. Guess where you're going to invest it? We're going to build a new temple here. So the religious crowd comes out in the street. They smell money. Okay? Want big donations. So... Thou hast erected my dwelling places, the work of eternity, made longer. Notice God, the, the almond rays bragging to Tutmos. You made it longer and wider than that which had been before. Thy monuments are greater than those of any king who has been. I commanded thee to make them. I'm satisfied with them. And finally, in an interesting parallel, Amun Re promises to Tutmos, quote, I have established thee upon the throne of Horus for millions of years that you might lead the living for eternity. How long do you suppose that the new kingdom of Egypt existed? The Tutmosian dynasty lasted only for about 200 years at most. David lived in 1000 BC. How long did his dynasty last? We have the record of the perpetuation of that dynasty all the way from 1000 BC to the time of Mary and Joseph. The dynasty lived. The dynasty survived. Now, who's promising who? You see that what's parallel here and what is at contrast here. The style of the Gentile leader is one where he does something for his God. Even his gods depend upon him. And in this case, the Tutmos gives to his God. What did you notice happen in 2 Samuel? Remember, I started off about 25 minutes ago and I made mention of something that Nathan did when Nathan walked into David. What did Nathan say? Remember? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Customary thing. Back from war, go ahead. Give it to God. And what did God do through Nathan? No. You're not going to give me anything. In fact, David, I'm going to give more stuff to you. I gave you your career. I gave you your anointing. I gave you military victory. I gave you this throne. And now I'm going to give you a living, eternal dynasty. Who's the God of grace? You see? See the difference in the character of the theology of paganism and the theology of Scripture. In paganism, the gods receive. In the Bible, God gives. There's the God of grace. That's the God with whom we worship. That's the God who exposes himself, if you look carefully enough at history. And his promises ring true. This promise of millions of years wasn't fulfilled. This is a lie. This is a deception. This is a sweet religious deception. But God's word lives forever. It's empirically proven that the, second, that the Davidic covenant through 2 Samuel 7 endured. Father, we thank you for your grace. And as we see your footprints down through the corridors of time, and we see your public objective historical revelation, visible to anyone willing to look at it, we cannot come away but say that only you 
are the sovereign one, the God who loves us, the God who outgives all of us and all other gods, who was so gracious to David, who gave an eternal dynasty to establish the great king priest to come, who one day will ascend his throne as David did his. We thank you through his name. Amen. If uh, any of you would like to uh, bring up topics, questions that we didn't cover, or something that maybe wasn't clear to you, or uh, just want to ask a question about the text, yeah. Hi, Charlie. Uh, what did you say about there not being a Davidic line now, not recognizing Christ? What's the Davidic I'm not sure because the lineage of the question is. What do Jewish people say about the fact that the, there's no Davidic line that you can identify? Um, and, of course, that's because Christ is not necessary for the Davidic covenant. Uh, most Jewish people today are liberals in their view of the Old Testament, so I think the people to answer, answer that would be uh, Orthodox Jews, and I'm not sure what they say. I just know that it's interesting that in Leviticus or Numbers, I think Numbers 25, there's a prophecy that one of the Jewish tribes will forever maintain its identity. And it's the Levites. And they have. Because any Jewish name ending in Levi or Levi uh, or Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, that's the Hebrew word for priest, um, any Jewish name in that ballpark probably Unless, if you, you know, we can't prove it from blood, but it's a transmission of a name identity. So it's ironic that of all the 12 tribes, none of them that have distinct names except the Levites, even today. So that's kind of, I always think of that when I'm seeing somebody walk around Levi pants or something. I think, oh, maybe. <laughs> Oh, when I say Jew, uh, Jerusalem is a cultic center, I don't mean a cult like some far-out cult like you know the Mormons or something like that. The, the way that word is used in that, in that context, a cultic center is just a worship center. It's the center where there's public worship. It's not just, I mean, worship obviously is any place, but um, cultic worship means that you have a temple, you have an altar, you have something centered. It's physically obvious. So, is everybody clear on what I try to do tonight on that the, the covenant contrast? That the covenant form is very parallel to a lot of pagan forms. Now, even evangelical scholars kind of make it appear when you read their books that the Bible's borrowing. You know, God accommodated Himself to a prior existing structure. I prefer different chronology, and I think Tutmos and these guys followed David, and I think it's mimicking the Davidic covenant. I think the, probably the Davidic covenant was the original, and these others are just secondary. Come on, Satan's just mimicking what God was doing. But the point is that there's that difference. And to me, those are basic, fundamental ideas, what we're looking at here. We're not looking at something heavy and deep in detail. We're looking at very, very fundamentally basic ideas. The God of the Scriptures is the God of grace. And it comes through again and again and again. And there was a powerful thing there tonight with the Davidic Covenant. And 
what more contrast could you have than the pagan god expecting, expecting his little human king to give him, give him a temple. Say, and God doesn't, doesn't need our temples. And he makes it real clear from the start. Now, later on, he accepts the temple from Solomon, so that's all right. But I think it's so neat that God always starts out giving the giving. We start out doing the receiving. And then after that grand act is in place, then we'll talk about worship and what we can give God. But not until he's given to us, because otherwise we don't have anything to give to him. This is a good question, a very good question, Carl. Um, well, the question here is, when we read tonight that passage in Second um, Samuel 6, where David's bringing the ark up, you don't see God commanding that anywhere, seeming like. I mean, it, it looks like David's just kind of doing it. And that's one of the things that, that this is a rugged place in the Old Testament, believe me. I mean, uh, volumes have been written about this tension that's going on here in the scriptures. And the liberals like to go in and say, well, see, you had competing ideas and David started his own thing and that kind of stuff. Well, we can't accept that. Um, the Lord led somehow David to do that. Now, here's the tip where I think he does show very consciousness of it. Look in the Psalms, the Psalm 110. David sang about this later. Now this psalm is loaded. This psalm is packed with stuff. And you can't you could spend your lifetime trying to unravel this one. Because this psalm is quoted probably I think this psalm is quoted more than any of the psalm. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's quoted very frequently in the New Testament and it's quoted in very profound context dealing with the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Look at it. Psalm 110. Notice the language. Watch the language carefully and watch the names for God here. This is every word counts. A Psalm of David. So right now you know David's the author. The Lord, and do you notice in your English translation the two, word, the two nouns Lord occur and they're translated differently? Notice one is capitalized. That means they're two different words. The first one is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. The second one is a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord. Now here's the problem. The first L-O-R-D refers to God. Now the question is, what does the second L-O-R-D refer to? It's something. It's a person. But it's superior, the person is superior to David because David is calling him Lord. But it's the Lord who's saying to that Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Now, why does David say, my Lord? Probably because he's looking down through the corridors of time at his own dynasty. So he's looking at his seed. So the Lord says, David in some... You know, how, how this has happened, by the way. You know, nobody has ever asked this, or nobody, lots of people have asked it. Nobody's ever answered this question. What was going on in the heads 
are the guys that wrote the Psalms. They had prophetic insight. In some way, the Holy Spirit put into their heads a vision of some sort. This is real vision. The Lord says to my Lord, and then this quote, this is a quote. So in this vision that David sees, he heard God speaking to this person down through the corridors of time. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And then it says, the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, that's Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as a dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore will he lift up his head. Now this thing is loaded with interpretive questions. I'm not going to even go into it tonight. This is one tough passage of scripture to interpret, believe me. And it all starts out, you can't even get through the first line of this thing without having a problem here. But in response to Carl's question, this shows there's a deep theology behind what David did. And he was conscious of it. And it wasn't a random act that he just felt hokey one day and decide this would be a neat thing to do. This was deeply and profoundly related to insight as to what had happened in Jerusalem in the days of Abraham. Remember, David had access to Genesis. And David, when he was thinking and praying about where should he build his capital for his kingdom, he must have gone back to the Genesis text. And all we can infer from this is that God the Holy Spirit must have spoken to his heart. David, Remember where Abraham met King Melchizedek? That's where I want my capital. And if, if it's true that Melchizedek, as we said, is a long scholarly tradition that says that Melchizedek was an alter ego, alter name, or a pseudonym name, or an alias for Shem, that what, what happened in that Abrahamic narrative of Genesis 14 was a passing of the scepter from the Noahic family to the Abrahamic family. And it was done through Shem, the son of Noah, who shows up under this name Melchizedek. So we, that is speculation. The identity of Melchizedek that is speculation. I did, that's not in the word. But that's speculation by godly men who have examined this question over many, many years. So something's going on in Psalm 110. And whatever's going on in Psalm 110, that's what's being pulled up by the author of the book of Hebrews to explain... Jesus Christ. Because that passage that in the rest of verse 1, sit at my right hand, is clearly implied in the New Testament as to whom? Who's saying that? The Father is saying that to the Son. So quite clearly, the New Testament authors looked at Psalm 110 they said, there's Jesus. And Jesus is the son of David. So David somehow gets locked into this thing, and I don't profess to know all the details of it. It's just an amazing section of Scripture. And it's one of those things where <clears throat> we think we've got God in the box and everything works out, and then all of a sudden he pulls something like this. This was a genuine surprise. So it's not just that Michal, Saul's, Saul's daughter, who was his wife at the time, was probably ticked off at the way he looked and going around half nude in the street in front of young ladies, 
and acting like she perceived him to be an idiot. Uh, she despised him. But the text blames her for something more than just being upset about her husband's uh, exposing himself. Um, she's upset for a deeper reason. She's upset in the way that Zipporah is said to have been upset when Moses came and said, I want to circumcise our son. You're not going to answer, what a bloody God you have. Moses left her in the desert. Michal does the same thing. She despises whatever the work is that God is doing in David. And that's why she's childless, not because of whatever the social problem was there. There's something going on with David. There's a strangeness to David that doesn't fit the Jewish mold. And all I can say is that's what points ahead to the fact that the son of David isn't going to exactly fit the Jewish mold either. That's why to this day Jews have a hard time with Jesus. Because just like Michal had a hard time with David. There's something about this that doesn't quite fit their understanding of the way God ought to work. Anything else? We've got to go. Okay. See you next week.